and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. We'll begin with the devastating 37 indictments of Donald Trump by Special Counsel Jack Smith based on findings by a Florida grand jury, which compelled the former president to show up on Tuesday at the federal court in Miami, one day before his 77th birthday. The indictments provide overwhelming and damning evidence of Trump's endangerment of U.S. national security, exposing defense and weapons capabilities of both the U.S. and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of U.S. and its allies to military attack, and plans for possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. Joining us is Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General in the United States Justice Department, where he supervised work on national security matters. He is the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. Then we'll look further into the damage Trump has done to the nation's defense and intelligence capabilities and secrets, as well as Republican efforts to portray the prosecution as an effort by Biden to take out his major rival for the presidency. Joining us is Frederick Barron, who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. He also served as Assistant United States Attorney in the District of Columbia, as well as a counsel to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and he has a recent article at the Bulwark, Jim Jordan's Weaponization Subcommittee Keeps Firing Blanks. Then finally, we'll look into the uncanny luck that Trump has in being one step ahead of the sheriff while brazenly flaunting his criminality, which may now be running out. Joining us to discuss Trump's luck at having his pliant federal judge Eileen Cannon he appointed to hear the case is Bruce Green, the Lewis Stein Chair at Fordham Law School and the director of the Lewis Stein Center for Law and Ethics, where his main area of focus are legal ethics and criminal law. He is the past chair of the American Bar Association's Criminal Justice Section and chair of the New York State Bar Association's Committee on Professional Ethics. And joining us now is Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General in the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on national security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Greenberger. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, this extraordinary indictment, uh, 38 counts, uh, 37 against Trump, and particularly the indictments that are tied to the Espionage Act on the, his uh, abuse of classified material. And we don't even know who he showed this stuff to and who had access to it because it was sitting around in the ballroom and all kinds of public places at Mar-a-Lago. So any foreign spy could have uh, gotten some of the most amazing secrets. I mean, the secrets came from, and there are over 300 of them, some of them at the highest possible classification. They came from the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, the National Security Agency, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, the Department of Energy, and the Department of State's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. And of course, ironically, as Jack Smith points out in the indictment, back in 2016, Trump stated that he would enforce classification laws, and no one will be above the law. I mean, obviously referring to Hillary Clinton and that made-up case about 
her emails and on several occasions, what for five, six occasions, he pointed out that he will be a champion of protecting classified information. So what's your sense then of how strong this is? Because it sure as hell reads like a powerful indictment. I think it is very strong. I think that the special prosecutor, Jack Smith, is first of all a terrific uh, attorney, terrific public official. He's led this investigation for over six months. I think he's done a brilliant job. I think the indictment smacks of uh, terrific organization upon uh, the, by the Department of Justice. Um, and the one thing we can't forget, I mean, as astounding as the revelation of this indictment was, this is only one of four potential big-time indictments that Trump will face. He's already got the Manhattan District Attorney indictment. There's this indictment. Uh, the Justice Department is also uh, investigating the claims of insurrection based on the January 6th uh, events. And Georgia is moving uh, very intensely and very broadly on the uh, uh, Georgia investigation there. As amazing as Friday was, and uh, as intensely interesting as it was, uh, it is only one of four potential indictments. One has come down by the Manhattan DA. Uh, we've got the Justice Department indictment of Friday. Uh, there will doubtless be a later Justice Department indictment on the insurrection claims based on January 6th. And the Georgia uh, investigators are developing a very strong, powerful, and widespread case against Trump. So uh, as amazing as Friday was, it is only one of four uh, investigations and prosecutions by very able prosecutors against Trump. And when we have time to look at the array, we will recognize even more broadly the trouble that Trump is in. His supporters can rail against this as being politically based, but these indictments are so well prepared that independents uh, and conservative-leaning Democrats will doubtless fall back into the Democratic camp. This isn't a political action, but it has broad political ramifications. And no matter what the timing is of pursuing these prosecutions, they're going to have a very big and adverse impact on Trump if he is the Republican nominee uh, in the 2024 presidential election. Well, so far, the Republican establishment, led by the House Speaker McCarthy, are rallying to his, and so are his Republican competitors, with a couple of exceptions, who are running for the president. I mean, it's possible... Is it not, uh, Michael, that if all of what you just said catches up with him finally and he simply can't continue as a candidate, wouldn't he want to make a deal with somebody like Ron DeSantis to pardon him and therefore throw his weight behind? I mean, this is if he's rational, and I'm not suggesting for a minute that I think Trump is rational. But is that a possibility that he might? It's a yes, it's a possibility, but I think we have to deal with the reality 
that despite all these uh, prosecutions, number one, there will likely not be convictions before the 2024 presidential election. Uh, for one thing, it's now being fairly broadly uh, informed that uh, the Justice Department is likely to have a bad judge, uh, a Trump appointee and Trump supporting judge uh, in the Florida indictment that was brought on Friday. Um, so there'll be problems on the road for the Justice Department. But I think the information that's coming out, not from a legal standpoint, but from a political standpoint, I think is overwhelming. It's been very well presented by the Justice Department in last Friday's indictment. And uh, I think as a political matter, leaving aside legal in, uh, concerns, this is going to become an overwhelming uphill stream for Trump and the Republican Party. And to the extent that the, the Republican his opponents uh, in the party, for the most part, and those uh, members of Congress are trying to support him, uh, they have nothing else they really can do. And they're swimming upstream. And it's very, very damaging for the Republican Party. So um, I think that's what we have to keep our eye on. Uh, and, and the impact this will have on the 2024 elections. So I just read from page eight, which is, lists all the American intelligence agencies that, that generated these top secret documents that Trump stole and refused to give back and hid. And there's chapter and verse of how he tried to hide them. And some of this evidence is coming from the lawyers that he tried to uh, basically get to break the law. You know, he keeps firing lawyers. He just fired his other lawyers just a couple of days ago. And on page nine, of course, in contrast, you have his claims when he was running in 2016 that he'd be a champion of classifying documents. So it leads me to, since you supervised work on national security matters at the Department of Justice, Michael, after reading this indictment, you're left with the, the, the distinct impression that there's no way in the world that the United States government cannot indict and try and punish Trump for what he's done, because how can they punish other people that leak documents, like the 21-year-old Air Force guy that leaked all that stuff to a chat room of 16-year-olds, or reality winner who's rotting in jail? I mean, there's no way in the world that you can have a serious regime to protect government secrets when somebody like Donald Trump is so cavalier about them. Well, well, that's right to the extent. And the other thing that I think is somewhat lost in the wave of information here is the risks that people took to collect this information, those who are help, helping the United States, taking, putting their lives at risk to collect this information, how difficult it is to obtain this information, and then in one fell swoop to have it all released uh, to have the United States national security strategies made available to our enemies, it is absolutely and totally devastating. Uh, in 2016, when Trump was going after Hillary Clinton uh, and, and championing the need to protect national security secrets, uh, he was absolutely, uh, from a political standpoint, and uh, uh, right about his approach, 
and his a- actions uh, after he lost the presidency and being so cavalier about secrets is devastating, and it's devastating to the United States government and everything it does to try through national security concerns to protect the American people. I think this is going to be made very clear by the array of evidence that's brought forward in this case and other cases. And I think once we have these indictments under our belt and the information under our belt, leaving aside what the legal consequences are for Trump, I think the political consequences will end up being devastating, not only for Trump and for the Republican Party that's being hung on its own petard by the need to support Trump. That is not a wise political strategy in the long run, and it will come to be very harmful to Republicans, to the the presidential ticket, to the congressional ticket, and up and down the line when uh, November 24 votes are counted. Well, we know that Trump saw the presidency as a, as a business opportunity and wanted to monetize as much as he could and kept steering business to his golf courses. And we don't even know the extent to which this PGA deal with LIV, the Saudis, uh, how much that's a payoff to Trump. There needs to be some more investigating of who owns the 7% apart from this 93% that the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund owns of LIV. But is it possible that Trump showed some of this stuff or copied some of this stuff and gave it to Putin, his buddy, or to his other buddy, Mohammed bin Salman? You raise a very interesting point, Ian. For all the intense interest in the indictment that was brought on Friday, the one thing that's missing uh, in that indictment is what was Trump's motivation for doing all this? It wasn't just intellectual curiosity or his intellectual pride in having this information. There clearly was a motive here, and that is the rock that has not yet been over turned over and I think will be turned over is that Trump wanted to in some ways monetize uh, this information in one of two ways. And we see that, you know, his son-in-law Kushner uh, gets a $2 billion deal with the Saudis right after uh, the 2020 election. But either Trump was going to use this to try and protect himself, to try and sell this information we don't have the precision, uh, the precise information on that. That's the one missing element of Friday's indictment. But that will come down the pike, and it will not be edifying to see how Trump wanted to use this either as blackmail to protect himself or as a way to sell this information to, for monetary gain. There's something there that's very unattractive. It's not just intellectual curiosity on his part to have these, this information uh, within his possession so that he can quietly review it. It's, he had a, a purpose here, and the purpose, whatever it might have been, is not going to be something that will be edifying to the American public. And I think that's the further shoe that's going to drop here to just make this a completely a complete travesty for Trump and the Republican Party. 
so there's a lot more to come. There's a lot of investigating that will be done. And uh, uh, we haven't seen uh, the full scope of the abomination that this uh, event is, highlighted by the fact that in 2016, Trump fully understood when he was going after Hillary Clinton how important it is to protect national secrets. And uh, he not only uh, broke that rule, but I think we're going to find out he broke it for very uh, unattractive purposes. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, Michael Greenberg, again, since you supervise work on national security matters at the Department of Justice, does the intelligence community have to assume that all of that material that Trump stole, at least 300 highly secret documents, some with war plans to attack Iran, others uh, that he showed at Bedminster to somebody from his political action committee that apparently was about an ongoing war that's happening. Does the IC have to assume that everything that was in those boxes in the shower, in his office, in the storeroom, in the ballroom, on a stage, in an open ballroom, there's, there's pictures of these boxes, do you have to assume that all of that, those secrets were compromised and therefore you have to tally up the incredible cost uh, that this could be to the U.S. taxpayer? The short answer to that is yes, you have to assume that. And I can assure you that the intelligence agencies are assuming that and they are drawing up plans and uh, devising ways to deal with this uh, unbelievable compromise of American national security. Yes. And that, when we say that, that, that highlights to us the devastation that Trump brought here. Uh, it was a very bad thing for the American uh, people and the American government, and they will have to deal with this. And uh, it's the, the, the sorry uh, good point out of all this is that they at least know what damage has been done. Uh, if he had been able to keep these boxes away from the FBI, I think we would have seen uh, as uh, time rolled on him do step by step undercutting national security. And the consolation is that the United States government and the United States intelligence agency at least know what the damage is going to be and, and be able to uh, prepare for it. Well, Michael Greenberger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Good. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Greenberger, the former Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work on national security matters. He's the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into the damage Trump has done to the nation's national security, as well as Republican efforts to portray the prosecution as an effort by Biden to take out his major rival for the presidency. Well, I'm sitting behind my desk in Washington, D.C. Down underneath the Florida sun 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Frederick Barron, who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General in the Justice Department as Special Assistant to the Attorney General and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. He also serves as an Assistant United States Attorney in the District of Columbia, as well as Counsel to the Senate Intelligence Committee on Intelligence. And he has a recent article at the Bulwark, Jim Jordan's Weaponization Subcommittee Keeps Firing Blanks. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frederick Barron. Thanks very much, Ian. Well, obviously, Frederick, I wanted to tap into your expertise on national security issues, having been the director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. But just to sort of touch on Trump's grievance tour and the extent to which the Republican Party is rallying around him, including his opponents running for the presidential nomination against him. It's pretty extraordinary, uh, some of the the rhetoric that we're hearing on Friday as a, a keynote speaker at a GOP rally in Georgia. Arizona Republican Carrie Lake said that she was going to go to uh, Miami to support Trump on Tuesday. And she said, if you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me, and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. She said to this GOP convention on Friday in Georgia, to this standing ovation and roaring cheers, going on to say, most of us are card-carrying members of the NRA, and that's not a threat. That's a public service announcement. So what do you think is going to happen here on Tuesday, if indeed Trump's followers answer the call, and by the way, he on Truth Social on Friday also uh, invited people to come to Florida, his supporters. So, what do you think is going to happen on Tuesday? Most likely business as usual. In other words, uh, going back to Trump's indictment in New York, he made statements to the press about how uh, he would be rallying his faithful uh, who would uh, be showing up at the courthouse demonstrating in his favor um, and doing various things to prevent this uh, injustice of the indictment against him in New York. As it turned out, that was a complete fizzle. Um, He he was not able to turn out a a lot of folks. Um, anyone, Anyone even contemplating uh, taking an aggressive or violent action would have to now face the reality of what happened to the folks who engaged in that kind of conduct uh, uh, back at, at the time of January 6th, because many of them are in prison. And uh, so uh, federal law enforcement undoubtedly will be on the alert and taking all kinds of precautions, uh, and politicians will be making aggressive statements. But uh, with any uh, luck uh, or any good judgment, uh, there won't be people showing up uh, intending to do violence because it would probably result in their arrest uh, rapidly. Uh, I think uh, the Justice Department has a long, long history of conducting prosecutions under all kinds of challenging circumstances, and they always roll forward relentlessly to ultimately a conclusion uh, where there's a trial uh, or, or there's a plea. Well, at the same GOP event in Georgia on Saturday, former President Trump said, 
I put everything on the line and I will never yield. I will never be detained. I will never stop fighting for you. And then he went on, went on to launch this tirade against what he calls the radical left, the Marxist left and uh, the corrupt FBI, and said, because in the end they are not coming after me, they are coming after you, and I'm just standing in their way. So, Frederick, that, that's classic demagoguery from tyrants and people like you know Adolf Hitler, who in Hitler's case it, the, it was the Jews, and I'm going to protect you from them. And in Ron DeSantis's case, it's the woke. And in Donald Trump's case, it's the Marxist left and the FBI and corrupt attorney generals and the special counsel, who he calls deranged. Can he get away with this? Can you really paint a picture to the American people and to your own own supporters? that the FBI is a cabal of Marxist leftists? Well, can he paint the picture? Uh, Yes, in the sense that that's a picture he's uh, fairly consistently tried to paint, uh, either with innuendo or being as explicit as as he's being now out of desperation. Can he get away with it? No. Uh, I think that uh, what will happen in reality is that he, he may... Uh, motivate and delude a certain percentage of his faithful followers uh, who may never let go of the notion that he's being unfairly uh, persecuted. But as to the majority, uh, the the uh, first uh, or the latest chink in, in that armor is uh, the indictment itself. The indictment is loaded with very specific facts which uh, come from the mouth of Donald Trump, who was uh, recorded with his own with his own consent, he was recorded in certain interviews saying things that are now looking like admissions uh, of crimes. Uh, he was also um, uh, uh, the subject of uh, direct uh, witness uh, observations of his conduct, which which is now clearly criminal in many counts in the indictment. What I mean there is one of his own attorneys was right at the center of the action with him and that attorney's own uh, notes and records were uh, disclosed to the prosecutors by a federal judge who looked at all of the background in uh, uh, secret and concluded that there was so much evidence that a crime was afoot that uh, the attorney could be compelled to turn over his uh, notes and records, which ordinarily would be uh, privileged. And then, indeed, the attorney had taken very detailed notes of things that uh, Trump was saying, which which were uh, effectively uh, uh, a direct commission of crimes like obstruction of justice. And I can go into that in a moment if you'd like. But the, but the point here is um, that the uh, the damning evidence is is uh, doesn't doesn't require much imagination. It's right there on the cover uh, uh, of the indictment, and it's coming from uh, the mouth of Trump or people close to Trump who heard exactly what he said, and and then videotapes from the security footage at his own Mar-a-Lago, which showed the, his movement of boxes and concealment of papers and uh, misinformation given to the prosecutors or the National Archives about the existence of the boxes uh, when when it's right there on on videotape that Trump's own security system was recording. It's also right there in uh, photos that were taken by Trump's own staff 
who were trying to let him know when, when he was asking them to move the boxes around, they were trying to let him know just how many boxes they were up against and where they were and how crowded the storage rooms were getting. Uh, so uh, there's, there's ample evidence right on the surface that would give the lie to the aggressive exaggerations that you're hearing now for political reasons. Well, there's an interesting exchange that's uh, in the indictment. And again, you know, both Jack Smith at his press conference on Friday urged people to read it, and most of all the Republicans should read it before rushing to Trump's defense. And I think anybody in the audience should read it. Uh, It's really extraordinary. But the exchange that is in there between two of his staff members down in Mar-a-Lago over moving the boxes, one says... Okay, so POTUS specifically asked Walt, meaning uh, Walt Nader, otherwise known as the Diet Coke Valet, asked Walt Nader for these boxes to be in the business center because they are his papers. Then he went on to say, there's still a little room in the shower where the other stuff is, the employee texted. It's only his papers he cares for. There's some stuff in there that are not papers. Could that go to storage, or does he want everything in there on property? And then the second employer responds, yes, anything that's not the beautiful mind paper boxes can definitely go to storage. What do you think he means by the beautiful mind paper boxes? Uh, I think that's a phrase that will be uh, put up in large print in front of a jury at a trial, and it'll be clear from all of the surrounding context that what's meant there is the boxes that contain uh, classified information. That, uh, that, as far as Trump was concerned, these were beautiful possessions of his that he was entitled to keep. As far as the law was concerned, he was not entitled to have them at all. And, uh, and uh, as far as the evidence is concerned, uh, as you say, there there is one account after another after another of staff people from Mar-a-Lago who were being asked to move the boxes around whenever the FBI uh, indicated that they were about to conduct a search or they wanted, they wanted information about how many boxes were available. They were being given misinformation, and the boxes were moving around like peas under a shell uh, to keep them away from uh, the FBI. Uh, and, and there are many uh, staff people from Mar-a-Lago who could testify to that. The, the other um, sort of searing example uh, is uh, one given by uh, one of Trump's own attorneys, again, whose, whose notes and records were produced. And interestingly, the attorney was taking very detailed notes of his discussions with Trump uh, about uh, the, uh, the disclosure of the boxes and what would be what would be provided to the FBI and what would be told to the FBI. And it seems in retrospect that the attorney was keeping such complete uh, notes because the attorney was smart enough to realize uh, there are problems here, that the president appear, or the former president appears to want us to keep evidence away from the FBI. That, that would get anyone in trouble who's a part of it. And so the attorney may have been uh, protecting himself by creating a detailed record, which ultimately a judge uh, required to be disclosed. So here's what that record said. The attorney, the attorney was summarizing uh, what Trump was telling him about how to prepare 
to respond to uh, the request uh, for uh, documents to be turned over to the FBI. A, uh, I don't want anybody looking. I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I really don't. I don't want you looking through my boxes. You meaning this is Trump talking to the attorney. B, well, what if we, what happens if we just don't respond at all or don't play ball with them? That's Trump speaking to his attorney. C, wouldn't it be better if we just told them we don't have anything here? And finally, D, well, look, isn't it better if there are no documents? And this is the attorney quoting the essence of what Trump is saying to him, which is, um, since we're being asked to provide these documents, uh, why don't we decide we won't look, we won't respond, we won't tell them what we have, We'll we'll pretend they don't exist. And that's tremendously damning uh, evidence being written down right at the time it was said by the attorney. So, Frederick Barron, I wanted to talk to you about your previous job at the Department of Justice as the director of the Executive Office for National Security in the DOJ. As you know, the intelligence world is like a pyramid. At the base of the pyramid, you have people collecting the intelligence. And as you go up the pyramid, as it narrows, you have people assessing it, refining it, etc. And then at the very top of the pyramid, there is one customer for all of this intelligence from all of these enormous number of 16 you know, US intelligence services and what is it, $100 billion budget or whatever it is. There's just one customer at the top, and that's the President of the United States. So if, this, if the President of the United States is giving away secrets and throwing them around and treating them in this cavalier manner, and we don't know whether he copied them and gave them to his Saudi buddy MBS or his buddy in the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin, but having been in that position, Frederick, have you ever seen anything like this? No, uh, not even close. Um, the, and this is a unique event in the history of the country. Uh, it's, it's not unique that uh, someone in a lead uh, position in the government um, ends up uh, having some documents in their possession after they leave the government. Uh, in, in most cases, it, it comes out that it's completely inadvertent. They didn't realize they had it um, or or they didn't realize they shouldn't have had it, but the moment they're they're asked about it and, and they realize they've got it, they turn it over, they cooperate uh, fully. Uh, there have been some instances where uh, top people, like the director of the CIA uh, or General Petraeus, uh, had some documents they shouldn't have had, and they rapidly worked out a plea where they said, okay, I violated the uh, relevant laws, and um, and you can give me whatever the penalty is. Uh, but this is absolutely unique, both in terms of the enormous magnitude of what was taken and the fact that there were um, months and months and months uh, going going into uh, about uh, almost two years of obstruction and resistance to giving it back. And loads of evidence now that there was very intentional uh, deception uh, and uh, movement of the documents in order to play a game of keep away with the FBI. So there's nothing like this has uh, happened before uh, involving a high, uh, a high official in the government. So just in closing, Frederick Barron, since you were also the counsel to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and you worked on the 
church committee uh, investigation, the fact that Jim Jordan, and you wrote about in the Woolwick, his weaponization subcommittee has used the church committee as their model to follow, which is an absolute travesty. Is he an example of what we were talking about earlier, about you know the, the madness in the Republican Party, that they've made this pact with the devil and he's going to take them down? Yes, the, the irony here is that Jim Jordan is an example of the very type of weaponization of uh, government power that he uh, alleges that he is investigating. In fact, he's, he's committing it rather than investigating it. And, and in this particular instance, what he's, what he's just done in the last few days is to repeat his demands that the Justice Department turn over to him all kinds of records that relate to this investigation of Donald Trump directly related now to an ongoing indictment. The church committee uh, was an investigation of of, uh, allegedly improper conduct of intelligence agencies uh, by the uh, Senate, and uh, it was a legitimate exercise of the oversight powers of the Senate, but it was done with great sensitivity for protecting the uh, classified information of the government and not interfering with ongoing uh, criminal investigations or ongoing legitimate intelligence operations. Here, by contrast, you have Jim Jordan uh, trying to uh, interfere with an ongoing prosecution, no longer a potential prosecution, but an actual indictment with uh, some 38 counts uh, 31 counts related to violating the Espionage Act against Trump, uh, five counts relating to conspiracy to obstruct justice, and two counts relating to false statements to the FBI. And Jim Jordan's trying to get in, in the middle of that uh, and, in effect, um, back off the Department of Justice when, when this is not a proper... Uh, it's not a proper use of, of any kind of legislative power. The, the courts have said in past cases that... Congress does not have the authority to get into the middle of the investigation or prosecution process while it's ongoing. Right, and and when you're on the church committee, the Democratic councils and the Republican councils worked together. They did interviews of witnesses together. It was completely bipartisan, and this this ridiculous clown show that that uh, Jordan is putting on is totally partisan, and the Democrats are shut out. So it's just you know really clumsy, almost pathetic propaganda. Well, you you summarized it well. Um, uh, In response to Jordan's claim that he was modeling himself on the church committee with this investigation, I mustered uh, 29 former staff members, including the chief counsel uh, and uh, the former deputy national security advisor, uh, who had served on the church committee to say, no, here is the model you would have to be following. You'd, you'd be bipartisan at every level. The majority would share information with the minority. You'd be working hand in hand, and you'd be going after development of facts, not, not political rhetoric, but, but facts on the basis of which you would draw reasoned conclusions that, that members of the committee from both sides could agree upon, whereas Jim Jordan is off on his own conducting, in effect, a political attack and using the uh, House Judiciary Committee as his platform, but but not operating by any of the rules of the Church Committee. Well, Frederick Barron, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks a lot for having me. 
And again, I've been speaking with Frederick Barron, who was formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. He also served as an Assistant United States Attorney in the District of Columbia, as well as Counsel to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. And he has a recent article at the Bulwark, Jim Jordan's Weaponization Subcommittee Keeps Firing Blanks. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the uncanny luck that Trump has in having his pliant federal judge, Eileen Cannon, who he appointed, hear the case. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Bruce Green, the Lewis Stein Chair at Fordham Law School and the Director of the Lewis Stein Center for Law and Ethics, where his main areas of focus are legal ethics and criminal law. He is the past chair of the American Bar Association Criminal Justice Section and chair of the New York State Bar Association's Committee on Professional Ethics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Bruce Green. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of this extraordinary uh, indictment of President Trump? It makes for a pretty compelling reading, to say the very least. Do you think it's strong? And also, attempts on the part of the Republicans to portray this as, as a hit job by Joe Biden, who was trying to get rid of his number one rival for the presidency. Do you think that's going to fly? Uh, well, there's a, a lot uh, to your question. On, on the first question, um, uh, it's, it's a compelling reading, um, but it's also a, a very uh, compelling indictment. Um, unlike um, what the criticism some leveled against uh, the indictment in Manhattan that, that Alvin Bragg brought, uh, this one uh, you know, sets forth the evidence for the charges. There's, there are more than 30 charges. Um, they're very serious charges. Uh, a large number of them are under the Espionage Act, um, accusing um, Mr. Trump of uh, secreting documents that were classified. Some of them were stamped secret and top secret uh, that he had no right to keep. And then some of them are charges that are essentially obstruction of justice charges, alleging that when uh, the National Archives, and then the grand jury uh, tried to obtain the class, classified documents that he'd taken from the White House. Um, he arranged to hide them and um, make them unavailable and to have his lawyers um, submit a false certification uh, claiming that they'd done a diligent search and turned over 
uh, the documents when, in fact, he held on to them. And and um, part of what's compelling is that, you know, it's a lengthy indictment that sets forth the proof. And the proof as to the acts that were done is likely to be unassailable. And in fact, you know, although, you know, Republicans have been rallying around him and have been attacking the indictment, they haven't really been either. Maybe they, they trivialize um, the acts a little bit, but they really uh, can't suggest that the acts didn't occur. Um, the evidence apparently includes both an audio tape, which is a very damning uh, tape in, uh, of um, Mr. Trump showing a classified document to someone who was writing a book and acknowledging both that the document was classified and that he no longer had authority to declassify it. Uh, it includes, uh, you know, photographs and it includes the testimony of um, eyewitnesses, including his lawyers. So th- this isn't like a, a, a case against a mob figure where you're relying on cooperating witnesses who are themselves, um, you know, convicted criminals. Uh, it, it looks like um, the evidence will be very compelling, which is not surprising uh, because the tradition from which the special counsel comes, Jack Smith, is one where prosecutors don't bring cases unless they're personally convinced beyond a reasonable doubt of guilt and um, they believe that they have a winnable case. So um, I guess that leads to your, your other question about um, you know, the, the attempt um, by uh, Mr. Trump and his supporters to portray this as a partisan witch hunt. Uh, which is, you know, from the standard playbook of, um, you know, defendants in cases against, you know, political figures, government corruption cases, et cetera. Um, it was certainly from Mr. Trump's playbook uh, when, um, you know, Mr. Mueller was doing his special counsel investigation. I think um, the difficulty here, you know, and, and, and of course, it, it's a little bit of um, the pot calling the kettle black. Because uh, Mr. Trump himself, when he was president, president believed uh, that that he had authority <laughs> to direct the Justice Department in, in criminal cases, something that um, President Biden and, and uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland did not believe. Uh, and uh, Mr. Trump's Attorney General, uh, Bill Barr, uh, was accused, including in a book by one of his U.S. attorneys, of having exerted improper political influence. But here, um, you know, there's no evidence uh, of that. There's no evidence that President Biden tried to influence uh, Merrick Garland or that uh, Merrick Garland tried to influence uh, his special counsel. Um, And his special counsel is a career prosecutor uh, who's prosecuted Republicans as well as Democrats when he was um, in charge of corruption cases in the Justice Department. So I guess, the, the, you know, the, really, um, you know, you can't stop, um, you know, the accusations of uh, this being a political witch hunt. But it's hard to imagine uh, anybody um, for whom that was a less appropriate characterization than Jack Smith. So, Bruce Green, as much as the indictment is compelling and powerful, and if anybody does read it, as you say, it's pretty hard not to conclude that they've got a strong case, at the very least, and it should be tried, and as it, as it happens, it's being tried in Florida. 
But the judge initially is Judge Arlene Cannon, who bent over backwards to get uh, Trump off the hook once the documents were found uh, when the so-called FBI raid, as, as the way Trump characterized it. And she was the one who brought in the special master and delayed what was a pretty open and shut case and was eventually slapped down by the 11th Circuit Court. So is that not ironic? Um, it may be ironic. Um, it may also be a little bit worrisome from the prosecution's perspective. Um, that there's, uh, you know, it, it's, un, you know, unclear, you know, from her, her prior acts, whether that was, um, you know, just a, a legal error or reflects some kind of bias or predisposition. But, but the choice of judge who, who you know, first of all, it, it's unclear how she, was assigned this and whether she will be the judge who keeps the case. Um, and, and so I haven't seen anything that indicates that, um, you know, the, the, a wheel was spun or that, you know, a lottery was held and, and she was chosen at random. And it's not clear whether she's the judge only for uh, arraignment purposes or whether she will be the judge um, who has the case. But if she, if she does keep the case, um, you know, the, the judges have a significant role in um, shaping a criminal case. There will undoubtedly be uh, all kinds of legal motions. There'll be motions to suppress evidence. Um, there'll be issues of timing about, um, you know, when does this case go to trial, whether before or after the election. Um, she'll have a lot of discretion. Uh, much of it will be unreviewable or won't be reviewable anytime soon. And um, having a judge who's already appears to have a thumb on the scale um, in one sense is worrisome. But on another sense, uh, maybe it's a good thing because, um, you know, part of, uh, you know, Mr. Trump's, um, you know, bag of tricks has always been to attack not only the prosecution, but also the judge. Um, and it will, this is one judge. It will be very hard for the defense to attack. And so to the extent that she plays it straight, and, uh, you know, does her best to rule fairly based on the law, which I think we have to presume as a federal judge, she will. Um, and to the extent then things don't go well uh, for Mr. Trump, I think that that makes it harder for him to portray this all as um, a, a persecution, certainly a persecution uh, by the court. And, and you know, there's a tradition among prosecutors uh, that, um, you know, you should be able to win your case before any jury, you know, before any 12 people uh, picked from the citizenry. And one could argue, you know, in a case like this, the thumb ought to be on the scale in favor of uh, Mr. Trump and that you ought to be able to win your judge, your case, not only before any 12 jurors, but before any judge, including a, a, um, a Trump appointed judge. And so maybe in, in, in a way, uh, given what I think is the strength of the prosecution's case, uh, this will be a blessing in disguise. Well, as you pointed out, it's likely that uh, the jury and the jury pool is pretty pro-Trump being down there in South Florida. But if the judge, in this case, who's clearly has bent over backwards to help Trump initially and seemed to uh, really go out of a way to protect him and to delay things... There are some things that you said she could do. She could delay things. But at this point, with an arraignment, there's not a lot she could do, right? So what would happen then if 
after the arraignment, could they appeal? And if she's assigned the case, is there any mechanism for the prosecution to say, well, uh, this judge has shown bias in the defendant's favor in the past? So there are mechanisms to move to recuse or disqualify judges uh, based on bias, but that's not a realistic possibility here. Um, The fact that a judge um, made a ruling that got reversed by the Court of Appeals and that in retrospect was erroneous isn't a sign of bias. Um, And judges are presumed to be uh, fair and impartial, um, even if occasionally they, or maybe often, depending who they are, they make mistakes. And so, and, and, you know, beyond that, it would be a very bad look for the federal prosecutors to try to remove um, a judge just based on, you know, having made uh, an adverse ruling against the prosecutor. Judges uh, make rulings all the time. They, they should be able to make rulings against the prosecution um, when um, the law and the evidence require um, and and they're not perfect. And, and, you know, so here the judge, um, you know, proceeded in a way that presumably she thought was uh, legally correct. The Court of Appeals disagreed. Um, that's not what we think of as judicial bias. But could she, for example, delay the trial until after the 2024 elections? Well, I, I, you know, I think um, it, she wouldn't issue a ruling on day one scheduling the trial for um, after the election. But uh, if she has the case or any judge who has the case will have uh, motions and they'll have to rule on the motions and the pace at which they rule can be slower or faster. And, um, you know, the, the defense will have, you know, motions that, you know, to continue the case to enable them to engage in sufficient preparation and, and the judge can be um, more receptive or less receptive to that. So um, as a practical matter, uh, the judge has a lot of discretion in the pacing and timing of the case and could, um, if the, you know, if put it over. But you won't know un- until, um, you know, you won't know right away if, that, if that's the direction which the case is going. So just in closing then, Bruce Green, on Tuesday at the arraignment when he's asked to plea, and he surely will plea not guilty, and then bail will be set, a lot of analysts and legal scholars have been saying um, that we could have a presidential candidate who happens to be the leading Republican presidential candidate campaigning with an ankle bracelet. Is that likely to be the case? I think it's highly unlikely to be the case. Um, the, the only reason for any condition other than, you know, a release on his own recognizance, in other words, just letting him uh, go free pending the trial, is if you think that um, he, he's a flight risk. Um, I think the last person in the world who's a flight risk is, is Donald Trump. Where would he go? Um, you know, so, so I, I, and I, so I really don't, and it, and, and if he tried to, to flee, I think um, he would be pretty noticeable and, and the government would uh, notice that before he got very far. So I, I don't think um, that the government is going to ask for any kind of bail conditions here. And, you know, I, I think they're just going to um, proceed in a, uh, a reasonable way. 
but that will mean that he'll be photographed, fingerprinted, and have his passport confiscated. Um, I, I think that in New York, he was fingerprinted but not photographed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would say that probably there are enough photographs of him out there right. that the government doesn't need anymore. And I, I think probably the government has its fingerprints uh, somewhere as well. Sure. Well, it's the ritual of having a former president go through that that uh, people are finding yeah. compelling or appalling, depending upon your point of view. I thank you for joining us, Bruce Green. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Bruce Green, who was the Lewis Stein Chair at Fordham Law School and the director of the Lewis Stein Center for Law and Ethics, where his main area of focus are legal ethics and criminal law. He's the past chair of the American Bar Association Criminal Justice System and the chair of the New York Bar Association's Committee on Professional Ethics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more